c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. back to fat french and fabulous i'm jessica and i'm still janelle and today we are continuing the story of polar explorer robert falcon scott and the race to the south pole as a brief recap last time we discussed the history of antarctic exploration and scott's first venture to antarctica aboard the discovery after coming back to england scott was eager to return once more to the antarctic to pursue the greater accomplishments and consequent prestige that had evaded him during the first expedition he had to bide his time, however, due to a February 19, uh, 1907 incident where, under his captaincy, the Albemarle accidentally rammed another battleship during night maneuvers. He needed the goodwill of the Admiralty to support another expedition and wanted any sour feelings to die down before making the ask. Meanwhile, Ernest Shackleton, the merchant Navy officer who Scott had scapegoated for his team's mediocre performance in his 1905 book, The Voyage of the Discovery, had his own Antarctic ambitions. He had been offered and declined the chance to captain the ship Terra Nova on a resupply mission to Scott's expedition back in 1903, but Scott's unflattering portrayal of him had ignited a desire to return to the Antarctica and prove Scott wrong by outdoing him. I'm going to find the South Pole because I hate you. Yeah, like, I, I hate you so much. I'm going to go to the literal end of the earth <laughs> just to prove you wrong. I aspire like, to be so petty. <laughs> if only I could create such achievements out of spite and bile. <laughs> These men did not have enough problems in their lives. Like, they didn't, they didn't do enough dishes. Like... <laughs> Yeah, like, World War I happened specifically because men had too much time on their hands, and I stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a group of men who all have far too much leisure time who've now decided to race to the bottom, literally and figuratively. Like, that's the real reason that suffragettes were out there pounding the pavement asking for rights. It's because you guys need to do more vacuuming. <laughs> <laughs> you clearly cannot be allowed this kind of free time. <laughs> uh, uh, since his own return to London, Shackleton had played around with several different ventures, including journalism, investment, and in January 1904, a position as, as secretary of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society. Shackleton even spent some time as a pet explorer to industrialist William Beardmore, who used Shackleton to impress and entertain his business friends. Beardmore offered Shackleton £7,000 in funding for a new expedition, giving Shackleton six months to secure the rest of the funding if he wanted to leave England by the summer, thereby allowing him to arrive at Antarctica by January 1908. Shackleton's initial estimate was £17,000, soon revised to 30000 On February 12, 1907, he announced his planned attempt to reach both the Magnetic and Geographic South Poles to the Royal Geographical Society, who published its details in the Geographical Journal. 
This brought the proposal to the attention of Scott, who informed several key members of the society of his own plans, dividing potential support for Shackleton, and further sent a letter to Shackleton warning him off of using the McMurdo sound site, claiming it as his own field of work. In a responding letter, Shackleton pointed to Scott's own previous comments during the first expedition that his position with the Navy would prevent any further Antarctic ventures. He likewise reached out to Dr. Edward Wilson, who had helped mediate between the two during their southern journey, an initial attempt on the South Pole, asking him to intercede with Scott. But Wilson refused and encouraged him to abandon his Antarctic plans, or, if he decided to continue, not to make use of the McMurdo site for fear that the optics would taint any achievement. Finding no route to resolution, Shackleton agreed not to use the McMurdo Sound site, informing Scott in a letter that he would concede to Scott's demands and work eastward of the 170th Meridian West, giving wide berth to the area explored during the Discovery Expedition. This had numerous implications, including safety, uh, requiring the expedition to start from scratch rather than using a previously explored and verified site, and giving up access to the magnetic South Pole. This all just could have been so much easier if the two of them had just agreed to work together, like an old school buddy cop movie. Not, hey, it would be real rude of you to use the same route as me, so could you die on a different piece of ice, please? And, like, I was initially curious because the world is filled with nightmares and terror, but it is also filled with the strangeness of human sexuality. So I looked up on the fanfiction site <laughs> where, Archive of Our Own. Where are you going uh, with this? Because, <laughs> like, political fanfiction's a big thing. Uh, like, the number of Bill and Hillary fa- shippers out there is genuinely baffling. Oh, no. But I was looking at, like, how much, like, hate sex there was written by horny women in their 30s who have never touched a penis... Oh, no. uh, featuring Ernest Shackleton and Robert Falcon Scott. And there's surprisingly little. Uh, Scott Amundsen is way more popular, despite the fact that they never met face-to-face in the Antarctic. What uh, the fuck? <laughs> I, 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 I dared to hope that the answer would be none. That nobody was writing erotica of dead Antarctic explorers. But so help me God, Jessica, if I find out that you penned a single word of it, I will kill you. Uh, if it helps, I do not have that kind of time. Uh, all of my all of my saucy imaginings remain unwritten. <laughs> they will find your skeleton in the parking lot of a Best Buy. So help me God. Well, you know, the only way to settle this, Janelle, race to the South Pole, you versus me. <laughs> Listen, I have one sled dog and I'm ready to go. I got a chihuahua already. <laughs> hook her up to my sled. We've already been we've already been training her by keeping her in Nova Scotia. <laughs> so she'll be ready for the winter haul. Oh, no. You're going to have to bring her extra extra wet dog food. <laughs> Just to keep her strength up when on the tundra. Uh, Shackleton managed to cobble together sufficient private backing for his expedition, albeit a significantly scaled-down version thereof. His funding was a combination of donations and loans, including a 2,000-pound pledge from Edward Guinness, who got his money exactly how you think he did, 
and a 4,000 pound gift from a cousin and 2,000 pounds from a second generation baron, St. Philip Brocklehurst, in exchange for a spot on the expedition as assistant geologist. <laughs> a bear, a second generation baron named Brocklehurst. <laughs> I have no jokes to add to that. That's. <laughs> it's just too for perfect. the record. Second generation Baron Sir Philip Brocklehurst, assistant geologist. <laughs> Shackleton purchased the 334-ton former sealing vessel Nimrod uh, rather than the 700-ton Bjorn as intended. Uh, Nimrod, incidentally, means mighty hunter. Uh, well, it did mean that. <laughs> it did mean that until Looney Tunes. Uh, so in, in Looney Tunes, when, uh, Bugs Bunny refers to Elmer Fudd as Nimrod, that is intended to be ironic. It just, it doesn't mean just dumb. (laughs) But, uh, apparently the literary reference went over the head of the, uh, many children who watched this, uh, so it has come to take on a connotation of just (laughs) dummy. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, spending all of this money to buy this incredible vessel that is named after, like, a mythological hunter, and then, like, 200 years later, the name just means fucking simp. Like, honest to God. (laughs) (laughs) The 41-year-old Nimrod cost 5,000 pounds, and Shackleton had it fitted with a third mast and recalked. I I emphasize the caulk part, because otherwise I'd be saying recalked, and I... He did not have a giant wooden penis attached to the underside of the boat. I mean, he doesn't have to. This whole competition, this whole expedition is just a giant dick measuring contest. Yeah, the Nimrod itself is a metaphorical 334-ton three, penis. <laughs> it is. The whole thing is just penis. All of it. Every last <laughs> bit of this. Like, there is not a single woman involved in any of this. And that is both telling of the times and the stupidity of this venture. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how many of them die. Yeah, like, none of these expeditions even pass the Bechdel test. It's <laughs> everyone who planned them had a penis, everyone who went on them had a penis, everyone who died had a penis. <laughs> the only women involved were the occasional sled dog. <laughs> who also died. <laughs> who also died. <laughs> But uh, they had no choice in the matter. No one asked them if they thought this was smart. (laughs) (laughs) On April 11th, 1907, when the Nimrod set sail, Shackleton was still short of the full amount. And thus, Shackleton continued fundraising over the course of the voyage, acquiring additional support from the governments of Australia and New Zealand, who pledged 5,000 and 1,000 pounds respectively. The crew was largely inexperienced with the Antarctic, most men from the Discovery turning Shackleton down out of loyalty to Scott, the exception being two petty officers, Frank Wilde and Ernest Joyce. Joyce, in particular, was brought on after Shackleton caught sight of him on the top deck of a bus through the window of the expedition's London offices and had him tracked down. It's one way to hire, I guess. <laughs> if we were sponsors, this would be the ideal place for a zip recruiter ad. I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. Tired of tracking down random men you see at the top of buses? You need zip recruiter. <laughs> Find qualified candidates for your Antarctic exploration ex- expedition today. <laughs> zip recruiter. <laughs> 
I'm ready. Give me money, ZipRecruiter. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's a it's a better method of recruiting than that fellow on that bus over yonder looks strong. Go mm. track him down. <laughs> Send out a boy. We need to find Ernest Joyce. <laughs> The science team was small, consisting of a biologist, a geologist, and a mineralogist, with Royal Navy Reserve uh, Lieutenant Jameson Boyd Adams doubling as meteorologist and second officer, after the Nimrod's original second-in-command suffered an accident resulting in the loss of his right eye. What? Uh, yeah, it's never quite explained what happened or why, but shortly before they disembark, the original second in command, just fucking lost an eye, and they didn't feel the need to specify how. <laughs> this is just a thing that's happened. Just go with it. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't think you need to explain if somebody, like, injures a foot. I think you need to explain was removed from the expedition after losing an eye. <laughs> and is that, At the very like, least, I'm curious. Is it really disqualifying? I mean, you're gonna get snow blindness anyway. I think he was just the fact that it was a bit traumatic. I think he was just like, ah, I've lost an eye. And they're just like, do you want to keep going? And he's like, no, I I lost an eye. (laughs) Dicks. Fuck you. I was like, I mean, you don't really need depth perception in the, like, in an endless void of ice. Like there's there's wind conditions, there's fog conditions, there's mirages on the on the and the corners of your vision. Like the bottom of the world is not a great place to see, and but like having a second eyeball doesn't super help. <laughs> also, they'll let you drive an actual car with one eye. You could yeah. you could still operate a minivan. So surely you can operate sled dogs. They have two eyes. They have depth perception. They don't need you, really. <laughs> You're just along you for really the ride. Have zero chance of hitting anybody. If if you if you hit a pedestrian, honestly, that's on them at this point. You <laughs> you went to the Antarctica just to drive around. <laughs> and if you hit a pedestrian, it's a penguin, so <laughs> it's not going to sue. <laughs> Chief Science Officer. Uh, Edgeworth Davis of the University of Sydney, who had joined the team alongside mineralogist and formal pupil Douglas Mawson in Australia, had been especially helpful in acquiring funding from the Australian government. In addition to dogs, Shackleton brought an experimental motor vehicle uh, specifically designed for the Antarctic tundra and ten Manchurian ponies, against the explicit advice of experienced polar explorer and Norwegian heartthrob Nansen. I mean, what do horses eat? <laughs> like, not ice, you know? Not to mention that horses sweat. <laughs> They're not like dogs where you don't have to worry about them getting cold when they exert themselves. It's just, it just seems like if the, the first team of sled dogs all died, let's get an animal that's even more fragile. Yeah, never mind that Like, you can't get more food for them in the Antarctic. Like, if you, if you have dogs, you can just feed them penguin. <laughs> Will dogs like, eat penguin? Like, oh yeah, like it's meat. Meat's meat. All right. Yeah, they're dogs. They don't care. I mean, as proven by the previous expeditions, dogs will eat dog. So, <laughs> for the ponies, Shackleton acquired ten tons of compressed oat, bran, and chaff fodder, a large amount of corn, and what is known as mangi ration, a type of specialized pemmican developed for by the British military. It consisted of dried beef, carrots, currants milk, and sugar. 
This was used because the British military had sometime before discovered that horses will eat fresh meat. Uh, I never needed to know that horses will eat meat, that's, and that knowledge will haunt me. That's, that, I was gonna say, that's deeply haunting knowledge. But also, it seems like it's hugely inefficient. They have more food that they have to haul for these horses than these horses are probably capable of hauling. When they're not eating horse jerky, the very concept of which is horrifying, <laughs> hay is not known for its... Dense, nutrient-rich values. No. Like, there's a reason why Arctic explorers are using predators, uh, or at the very least omnivores, and it's because the kinds of foods that herbivorous animals eat are difficult to pack in a concentrated area. It'd be like if you went on a week-long hike and you packed all your caloric needs in celery. It would just... Completely undo everything. You'd all of your gear would just be hundreds of pounds of celery. People would be like, "Where's, where's the camp stove?" And I'm just like, uh, I open up like a, a, my my bag and just like a, tons of bundles of celery pop out. They're like, "Did you bring a tent?" And like I open up another pocket and just there's more celery. <laughs> You're just dragging a cooler behind you on a string. Like, yeah. <laughs> It's, um, it's that. And- it's not efficient. They're not a good choice for an area that doesn't have grass. Like, I, I, I think it's notable that most campaigning armies could expect there to be grass when they, when they go. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not Russia in winter, there's a good chance that there's grass there. Like, and, and, and the Nimrod was so overloaded that it lacked sufficient cargo space for coal. And thus had to be towed 1,400 nautical miles from New Zealand to the into the Antarctic Circle. They headed for their first potential base base site, Barrier Inlet, where the, the ice had broken up, revealing a large bay now filled with whales. They tried their second potential site, King Edward VII Land, but found their way down the coast blocked by ice. Finally, rather than abandon the expedition, Shackleton decided to break his promise to Scott, and on January 25th, 1908, he turned the ship towards McMurdo Sound, eventually setting up camp 23 miles north of the Discovery encampment. The expedition suffered numerous setbacks. The second officer, as previously stated, lost an eye in an accident of some kind. Unloading the ship was delayed by the captain's intransigence. Uh, clashes with Shackleton and overcautious insistence on taking the ship out into the bay whenever he disliked the look of the ice near the landing site. And the Nimrod returned north shortly after with the ship's engineer carrying a secret letter from Shackleton ordering the captain's replacement. (laughs) The motor vehicle failed to perform on anything but flat ice, and four ponies died after eating volcanic sand. What? uh, Which they were (laughs) apparently they were attracted to the salt content. Oh no. And (laughs) And they just turned themselves into horse jerky? That's not good. (laughs) so you haul so much horse food that you don't have room for coal and when you get there the horses just immediately die from eating literal sand (laughs) Uh, all four that accompanied Shackleton's southward expedition perished of respectively being put down with a bullet after a laming fall exhaustion exhaustion and falling down a massive glacial crevice They hauled so much food for these awful, awful beasts. 
Yeah, but despite this, Shackleton's report of their effectiveness compared to dogs was generally positive. That being said, as stated on our last par- the last part, they didn't use the dogs right the first time. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's only because he's used to horses. Yeah, it's like, you knew how to take care of horses, you brought reasonable experts in horses, and unlike Scott, you didn't just start shooting them the moment they were difficult. <laughs> 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 I mean, like, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with effectiveness. It's just that you just like horses, even if they eat sand until they die and fall off of crevices. Uh, despite these setbacks, the expedition was a relative success. A party led by Shackleton climbed to the peak of Mount Erebus, Antarctica's second highest volcano, while another led by Davis calculated that they had reached the magnetic South Pole. They failed to reach the geographic pole, but... But the four-man team Shackleton took south beat the Discovery Expedition's southernmost point record by an impressive margin. The 88th parallel, 23 minutes, to Scott's 82, 17 minutes, within 100 nautical miles of the pole. Dick successfully measured, I guess. Which, I I think we'll agree, if your dick measuring contest is beaten by a margin of multiple parallels of the Earth... I mean, at that point, it's not even impressive. It's a medical condition. You need to roll up your dick just to put your pants on. (laughs) They were slowed down by many of the same issues that plagued Scott's own southern journey. Insufficient rations, inclement weather, illness, ill-used animals, and interpersonal tensions. But aided by Shackleton's experience with the terrain and the difficulty of daytime surface melt and his personal leadership style, they nonetheless made far better time. They likewise found a clear path between two mountains and onto a glacier, which Shackleton named Beardmore for his primary financial backer. The Nimrod team managed a respectable 1,755 miles over 126 days, an average of around 13.9 miles a day to the Discovery team's 960 miles over 93 days, averaging just over 10 miles per day. Not bad, actually. Yeah. I will hand it to them. Even though all their horses died from being stupid, it's not bad. Uh, Shackleton had a knack for connecting with the other members of his team, making each feel as if he were vital and valued. On the return journey, Petty Petty Officer Frank Wilde developed dysentery. Then Dr. Eric Marshall grew ill after consuming tainted pony meat. Uh, (laughs) How? 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 (laughs) Oh my god. I mean, you're surrounded by ice. Can't you figure out how to chill this? <laughs> and they're eating the toxic uh, sand. Why are you going to eat them? Yeah, Shackleton was likewise worn out, but his deterioration only made him more determined, pulling harder as he grew weaker, according to second-in-command Lieutenant Adams. In late February, Marshall's condition took a turn for the worse, and on the afternoon of the 27th, Shackleton had them pitch camp, then took Wilde with him to forge on ahead with a day's provision and two sleeping bags on a single sled, leaving Marshall behind under the care of Adams. The next day, the two men were forced to detour seven miles around ice that had melted into open ocean, and then to abandon their sled and sleeping bags when the sea ice beneath them grew unsteady. Once the two neared Port Armitage, They flashed a heliograph message, a heliograph being a type of light-based Morse code device, but there was no response from the lookout. They returned to Hut Point to find the camp abandoned, with some provisions left behind and a letter explaining that the ship would be sheltering to the lee of the Glacier Tongue until the 26th, a full two days prior. 
According to Shackleton's orders before leaving the ex on the expedition, the ship was supposed to leave March 1st, at the very latest, should they have failed to return. Ominous. After supper, they wrapped themselves in a roofing felt from a hut and spent the night shivering. During that same night, they tried and failed to set fire to the observatory hut and to hang a flag from the cross erected for George Vince, a casualty from the Discovery expedition, but found their fingers too numb to tie the knots. Hanging your distress flag on the grave of the guy who died the last time you tried this? It, it can't be ominous. a good feeling. It is ominous. That is some horror movie shit. That's not a good omen. Finally, the ship appeared, which they signaled des uh, for desperately with the heliograph. They were rescued at 11 a.m. March 1st, significantly later than they were expected to return, and one can only imagine that the team members left at base had begun to wonder at the meaning of the delay, then to dread that the party had already perished out on the tundra, hundreds of miles from another human soul. The Nimrod Southern Push lasted 126 days, 35 days longer than planned, and 33 days longer than the Discovery journey. They did all make it back, though. I mean, minus the yeah. horses. They got turned into meat, I yeah, guess. Yeah, the horses... The horses were never supposed to make it back, although I don't think they told the horses that. <laughs> they made they became tainted meat. <laughs> uh, in incidentally, I do know of one uh, particular horror story written by H.P. Lovecraft about uh, the South Pole. Uh, but uh, it's it's sort of a weird story, even from Lovecraft, <laughs> because it's very clear that he is terrified of penguins. He's just <laughs> super creeped out by the concept of a bird with with flippers instead of wings. Like he he describes these penguins that live in like they're about the size of an emperor penguin, and they live in these underground caves, and they have no eyes, and they're just like described as skittering or scuttling. And I'm just like. H.P. Lovecraft, go outside. <laughs> I was gonna say, I, I'm willing to bet that the villain in that story is not food poisoning. No. <laughs> <laughs> and and like I don't know I don't know what to tell Mr. Lovecraft beyond that, like, you don't need deformed underground murder penguins to make Antarctica scary. Penguins are the least scary thing about Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Dying in a loveless void of ice is kind of the scary bit. Yeah, like, Antarctica is, like, a Canadian's worst nightmare. Like, honestly, as I go through this story, it's gonna be more and more unsettling to anyone who's lived anywhere close to the Arctic Circle. Awesome. If you can conceptualize what it's like to breathe in minus 45 degree weather, it's upsetting. It hurts more than you think it does. Yeah, and in, in, in the summer in Antarctica, it doesn't get that cold. Like, it's, you know, negative 20 or negative, you know, 15. But, like, the the highest temperatures in the winter are around negative 40, which is the same whether or not it is Fahrenheit or Celsius. <laughs> like, it's, some it's of the temperatures good. they gave me were, like, negative 70 Oh, Which, oh no yeah even in fahrenheit that's bad it's quite bad it, i think it's <laughs> that's worse very bad that is so cold <laughs> you can't survive that for any significant amount of time and frostbite no. begins to set in more or less immediately that's not just like your eyelids freezing together cold that is your butt cheeks freezing together cold <laughs> <laughs> unpleasant <laughs> If you have any moist flap in your body, 
<laughs> you need to keep it covered. Oh my god, that's the worst phrase you've ever created. <laughs> Moist flap. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know how quickly pee, pee freezes, but you're gonna want to shake off that last drip real quick. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> After a meal, Shackleton joined the relief party to collect Adams and Marshall. Finally, on March 4th, 1909, the Nimrod left Antarctica, and like Scott, when they disembarked in London, Shackleton was greeted as a hero, by his fellow Irishmen in particular. Note that they are not independent at this point. Uh, <laughs> of course. He received, a, he received a gold medal from the Royal Geographical Society and even a knighthood. More than vindicating Shackleton, however, the Nimrod expedition had revealed the path to the South Pole across the Beardmore Glacier, and with that knowledge, any team with sufficient transportation and preparation could reach it and return. The British were far from the only nation with their eye on Antarctica. Between the launch of the technically British Southern Cross expedition of 1898 and the end of the actually British Nimrod expedition, uh, there were a total of five other expeditions to the Antarctic Circle. One German, one Swedish, one Scottish, and two French. While their exploits were less boys' own adventures spectacular than those of Scott and Shackleton, they were no less scientifically significant. I'm particularly fond of the 1908 French expedition aboard the Pourquoi Pas Quatre. The why not? <laughs> yeah, the, not, the why not the fourth. <laughs> Maybe because the first three sank. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so not only did the French name a ship, why not? They did so no less than four times. <laughs> what happened to the first three? Whatever happened to the I first don't... three is why not? That's my final answer. <laughs> such a such a bold explore, spirit of exploration the French have. Why not? <laughs> <clears throat> the nationalism that often funded these expeditions nonetheless had led to an odd situation where by the mid-20th century, the Antarctic continent was covered in a swath of varied and often under overlapping formal claims by seven different countries, leading to an odd situation where a large chunk of what was ostensibly Australia was bisected by a, slins, a thin slice of technically France. Uh, this led to a series of contentious international legal battles that were finally settled by the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, which established the continent as a condominium and barred all military activity. Condominium here meaning a political territory under the formally agreed shared control of multiple sovereign powers and not a residential building where units are separately owned, bought, and sold rather than an apartment building where a single owner rents out units. Oh my god, we could go to Mars if we could stop arguing over little tiny scraps of this planet. <laughs> the treaty granted shared control of Antarctica to the 12 original signatory countries, but has expanded to a total of 29 voting mem uh, members in the modern day. In any case, Scott was not the only one with aims on Antarctica in 1909, including a Japanese expedition in the planning stages. Serious rivals to the South Pole were simply a matter of time adding a sense of urgency to plant the British flag there first. In December of 1909, Scott was released on half pay from his position as naval assistant to the second sea lord in London to command the converted whaler Terra Nova on an expedition to Antarctica. While the mission statement for the Discovery Expedition emphasized its scientific aims rather than national glory, Scott was far blunter in his prospectus for the Terra Nova expedition. They were to reach the South Pole in honor of the British Empire. 
Naturally. Funding was estimated at £40,000, half of which was covered by government grant and the rest by private fundraising and loans. For personnel, Scott brought 65 men for the ship crew and shore party, chosen from a list of 8,000 applicants. Seven had been on the Discovery Expedition, including Scott's good friend Dr. Wilson, appointed as chief, chief science officer, while another five had taken part in the Nimrod excursion. Many of the men were current or former mem- members of the Royal Navy, alongside a Marine and an Army captain. Regardless of the relative demotion of the scientific mission, the Terra Nova nonetheless carried a crack science team. I was going to say, how many of them were sniped from a bus? Hopefully none this time around. <laughs> Nobody had, like, a weird meet-cute where he saw you through a bus window and sent someone to track you down. <laughs> no, there was a more formal process than simply <laughs> grabbing people off of off of public transit. <laughs> they, were, they were accompanied, likewise, by Trygve Gran, a Norwegian ski expert on the advice of Nansen. That sounds like the couch I ordered that's arriving tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if Nansen gets tired of not being listened to. He's a very important man. You should respect his time. (laughs) In terms of transportation, they would rely on a combination of 34 dogs, 19 ponies, and three motor motor sledges, having decided to see Shackleton's horse death and dysentery party as a relative success. Uh, (laughs) There's the dinner party theme I've been looking for. Horse death and dysentery party. (laughs) That was the theme of my prom, personally. (laughs) Uh, Cecil Mears, chief dog handler and Russian translator for the expedition, was likewise charged with sourcing ponies, with which he had no experience and no capacity to judge quality. The new motor vehicles were to be run by the same specialist who joined Shackleton, Bernard Day, who, who, based on his experiences with the Nimrod expedition, added a continuous track to the design to improve traction on the ice. I was going to say, the expedition where the vehicles didn't work. That's the guy we've hired. Oh, where they immediately broke down. A plus. <laughs> and <laughs> it was the motor sledges on which Scott spent most of his attention. The ones that broke on day one. Perfect. Day Continue. fucking one. Proceed. The ones that didn't work on flat ice, barely. <laughs> good. Um, Excellent. Good. Good. I feel good about this. Scott continued to, to fundraise even after the Terra Nova set sail. Similar to the Discovery Expedition, they were provisioned in part by corporate sponsorship. And in order to sail the Terra Nova under the White Ensign as a naval vessel, Scott purchased a hundred-pound membership in the Royal Yacht Squadron, a prestigious yacht club associated with the Navy. Uh, Which brings us to Roald Amundsen. Amundsen, at 15, had been enthralled by narratives of British Sir John Franklin's Arctic expeditions, and at 17 had been inspired by fellow Norwegian Fridtjof Nansen's 1888 achievement as the first to cross Greenland on skis. Amundsen was the son of a family of captains and ship owners, but pursued medicine as a young man on the wishes of his mother, who viewed the family business as dangerous. This lasted as long as she lived and not a moment longer, as after her death, he left his medical studies for a life at sea at the age of 21. In February 1898, Amundsen was the first mate aboard the Belgica on a Belgian expedition to Antarctica led by Adrien de Gerlache when it became stuck in the ice and the crew was forced to spend the next year in the Antarctic Circle. That's the laziest boat name I've ever heard. Yeah, it's just It is a Belgian, Belgian expedition to Antarctica. 
I shall call it Belgica. Belgica. <laughs> it's like when a high school student starts creating like the names of new species for a novel they're writing. Uh, they survived in part by the expedition's American doctor hunting to supplement the crew's diet, thereby staving off scurvy through the small amounts of vitamin C found in fresh meat. As many of his colleagues went mad from deprivation and darkness, Amundsen remained unperturbed, calmly documenting events in his diaries. So he's the scariest fucker on this expedition. Oh, he has eyes like two piss holes in a snowbank and a thousand yards tear. This <laughs> man was most... broken before he ever met the ice. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a man you don't fuck with. A man that no amount of deprivation or isolation can get to. He's just calmly murdering penguins for their vitamin C. That's a scary <laughs> man. It's a terrifying dude. It's like, you can't go mad if you're already crazy. <laughs> I mean, those are circumstances you can survive, but they're not circumstances anybody should thrive in. That should not be your ideal habitat. <laughs> like, thousands of miles away from civilization on the brink of starvation is a weird place to find your groove. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that's kind of Amundsen's shtick. He gets trapped in the Antarctic for a year, and he decides that's his jam. <laughs> like, there's a kind of saying that you can only find on the other side of crazy, and that's Raoul <laughs> Amundsen. <laughs> <laughs> he just went straight out the other side. In 1903, Amundsen led a small six-man expedition to discover the Northwest Passage, a navigable route past North America to the Pacific Ocean through the Arctic Seas. Bad idea. Bad idea. Traditionally Bad idea. a terrible idea. <laughs> hundreds have tried and hundreds have died. Yeah, not, not great. But not only was Amundsen's team the first to make a complete Atlantic to Pacific passage through the Canadian Arctic, he wintered twice on King William Island, where he lived among the Inuit and learned their survival strategies, such as relying on clothes made of skins, which were both lighter, warmer, and more effective in damp conditions than wool parkas. They likewise taught him to coat the runners of sleds with ice and use dogs to pull them, reducing almost all friction when crossing tundra. Making the sleds slippery should not be that difficult of an innovation, and yet... It's, it's like, what if the sled was as slippery as the ground? <laughs> <laughs> Amundsen's initial plan was to make an attempt not on the South Pole, but on the North, via an extended ice-bound drift, similar to Fridjof Nansen's own 1893 attempt on the North Pole. Interesting. For background... Paraphernalia, including clothes and documents from the wreck of the USS Jeanette, which had become caught in the ice, crushed, and sunk off the coast of Siberia in 1881, were found three years later in ice off the southwestern coast of Greenland. Ominous. This, alongside other telling debris, led a Norwegian meteorologist to theorize that there was a westward current leading from Siberia to Greenland, perhaps crossing the pole itself. We tend to think of ice as a static solid, but it actually flows in much the same way as water, albeit much, much slower. It also follows a current, again, very slowly. As a 23-year-old doctoral student and curator at the Bergen Museum, Nansen was fascinated by the idea, and in 1890, he returned to it. I will have unsettling dreams about churning ice till the day I die. Thank you. <laughs> 
That February, Nansen addressed the Norwegian Geographical Society with his idea, a small, extremely strong ship with a small, well-trained crew of 12 and sufficient provisions for five years, which he would plow into the ice around Siberia and drift to Greenland, hopefully bringing them within either walking or kayaking distance of the pole itself. That's a lot of ifs. That's a lot of ifs. (laughs) And you die if you don't get that right. Yeah, like, you better hope every one of those theories is true. Huh, we found this guy's corpse in a different spot than we expected. I'm gonna bank five years of supplies that I know how that works. This plan Nansen considered entirely reasonable, and many other experienced polar explorers considered reckless, gibbering insanity. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there's, there's some voices of reason in the room. Yeah, like, there there are some people pointing out that this is a lot of untested. This is a lot of if. Uh, Nansen was nonetheless able to find enough support to fund the expedition. Because there's a lot of people who will pay for crazy, it turns out. (laughs) Commissioning the top Norwegian shipbuilder, Colin Archer, resulted in the specially designed Fram. The Fram rigged as a three-mast schooner and fitted with a steam engine, was a round little boat, 128 foot long and 34 foot wide, or uh, 38.9 to 10.4 meters, a three-to-one ratio that gave her a stubby, squat appearance. Uh, This rounded shape meant that she was awkward and slow in open water and tended to roll very unsettlingly, but also that rather than gripping and crushing her, the ice would tend to push her upwards, allowing her to float on the ice sheet. You see, there's, there's a purpose for those of us that are short, wide, and slow. <laughs> <laughs> we have our purposes. You may not be fully seaworthy, Janelle, but you're perfect for Arctic exploration, it turns out. You should put that, put that in your Tinder bio. I was going to say, I too <laughs> tend to float in large bodies of water. Like, you could try to drown me, but you're going to have to work for it. (laughs) I will bob up to the top like a cork. (laughs) I'm buoyant, damn it. She likewise had a short 15 foot slash 4.6 meter draft and a retractable rudder and propeller, the better to navigate shallow waters. Uh, Her smooth hull consisted of three layers of wood, the outermost of extremely hard South American greenheart timber. Most of the hull was 24 to 28 inches, or 60 to 70 centimeters thick, with around 48 inches at the bow. Likewise, she was internally reinforced by additional crossbeams and braces all the way down the hull. So he may be crazy, but he's also psychotically overprepared. <laughs> like, there, there, maybe there's a method somewhere in this madness, but it just seems like he's winging this. He has way too much money, and he's never been told no, and this is what's happening. The living quarters were comfortable and well-insulated, with an electric lighting system attached to a windmill-powered generator, intended to allow the crew to live in relatively pleasant conditions during the drift. Should the ship's special design fail and the hull give way under the pressure of the ice, Nansen's contingency plan was simply to camp out on the ice floe with a sufficient supply of provisions and allow themselves to be carried along to Greenland regardless. This man just does not care if he ever comes home. Like He's like, yeah, fuck it, I'll camp on the ice for five years, see if I give a shit. I'll wait for the tectonic (laughs) plates to carry me where I want to go. We'll just walk to Greenland. 
the thing the thing that bothers me the most is the people who agreed to do this with him. Like, how good a dick does he suck? <laughs> Jessica, my god, I don't think that's I mean, in the employee benefit package. I assume <laughs> you didn't even have a choice. They just plucked you off a bus and put you on a boat. There's not a lot- there, apparently there was not a lot of jobs available in Norway. It's just- I'm sorry, Janelle. I've been reading a lot of fanfiction about <laughs> Arctic explorers. Stop. <laughs> Stop. And I assume all 12 men on the expedition got a little bored from time to time. You know, year three. <laughs> when you're spooning naked for warmth, what happens in the tent stays in the tent, I guess. Weird noises, noises? Probably penguins. I know they're on the other side of the globe, but don't think about it. <laughs> the ice drift failed to bring the Fram near enough to the pole, and an attempt to reach it on foot likewise failed. The three-year expedition was otherwise a success, pr- proving the polar drift theory, resulting in a new record for the northernmost point reached by a human being, and pioneering the use of small, experienced teams, and the consultation of Inuit and Sami experienced expertise regarding sledge dogs in cross-country skis and polar exploration. It's just such a long chunk of your life, especially when people didn't live as long. They train (laughs) astronauts for years to spend not even that amount of time in close quarters with only a few other people. You just grab four random assholes and put them on a boat and you're gone for three years. Yeah, and like, you better hope those assholes are at the very least interesting conversationalists because nothing is happening to you for three years. And you can just can't just play I spy out the window. <laughs> like, it's ice. No one's getting... <laughs> you know, like, I spot with my little eye something that is white. Fuck you. <laughs> this is like the longest car journey on Earth. And like... I, we were in lockdown in Vancouver for two months, and we start. I started running out of things to talk about. I had to actively farm interesting podcasts just so that my roommate and I could look each other in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> my boyfriend and I have had more conversations about what's for dinner, and we don't even eat together anymore. We're in different <laughs> countries. It's just a lot of time spent talking about mashed potatoes. Well, the the most interesting that happened to you was green beans. Like, occasionally, like, you can love a person, but it gets a little dry. Like, my roommate and I, we have two banned topics in this house. Like, we can only mention Donald Trump once a week, (laughs) which is something we decided on in 2016 because it was just getting upsetting. Actually, we probably decided on that in 2015. So, like, we just, we have, like, a a Monday debrief on all the dumb shit he did last week. (laughs) And then Uh, we just don't talk about him for the rest, the next seven days. (laughs) On a completely unrelated note, my neighbor across the street, it is currently, local time, 4.38 in the morning, and my neighbor across the street is standing in his doorway, staring directly into my window, Just with the light on behind him, so he's just a black silhouette. And he's been doing this for about half an hour now. And it's kind of reached the point where this has gone from creepy to I might live across the street from the monster from It Follows. (laughs) He's just looking at me. That's- alright, I'm I'm here, you're here. I see you. Yeah, we're both- yeah, we're both here. (laughs) He's smoked 
almost three quarters of a pack of cigarettes in that time while making unbroken eye contact with this window. So if, if he wants to learn about Antarctica, he's welcome to break in. I mean, he could be a new fan, Janelle. You just gotta reach out. Gotta, gotta, <laughs> gotta, gotta find them where you can get them. This is the it, you might be do. just the only human being he's seen this week. That's entirely <laughs> plausible. But that's the whole point. We're all going pretty crazy after three months, like, in our homes with the internet. And with every comfort available. <laughs> three years. Like, it's a long time. And Amundsen, who is a very sane man, as previously discussed, like, I just think all Norwegians at the time were just a little bit broken. Uh, I think it was. I think it was hundreds of years of Swedish and/or Danish oppression. <laughs> <laughs> they just snapped. They just. They just lost it a little bit. Some hard Scandinavian men who whose blood remembers what it was like to be a Viking. <laughs> and <laughs> Amundsen decided he wanted to take another crack at Nansen's ice drift approach to reach the North Pole. Because it worked so well the first time. Uh, and when he broached the idea to Nansen, Nansen insisted he use the Fram, which, though technically the property of Norway, was easily ceded to Nansen and therefore to Amundsen. Amundsen announced his plans to the Norwegian Geographical Society on November 10th, 1908. He would take the Fram south around Africa to the Pacific Ocean, provisioning in San Francisco, then heading north through the Bering Strait to the Arctic Ocean, a starting point significantly east of Nansen's, to begin a four- to five-year ice drift. November 11th, Hakon Seventh, king following Norway's 1905 independence from Sweden, announced the creation of a subscription list for potential donors and himself gave the expedition a gift, a gift of 20,000 kroner. The next February, the Norwegian parliament further approved 75,000 kroner to refit the Fram. In contrast to Scott's expansive team and experimental transportation strategy, Amundsen took from Nansen's example, choosing a small, experienced group of 18, emphasizing interpersonal compatibility. Some members were experts in their fields, such as Olav Bjaland, champion skier and carpenter, but many, many would serve multiple roles, such as Fredrik Jertsen, naval officer with no medical background, who was made expedition doctor and given a crash course in surgery and dentistry. Oh, there's no way that's a poor choice. <laughs> Yeah, you know what you, I want after I crack a tooth on a particularly tough bit of penguin? A naval officer who spent four months looking at pictures of teeth. <laughs> Perfect. I feel sick. And uh, we're, we're gone for five years. So, you know, if something goes wrong, this is the only doctor you're going to see for half a decade. Like, I'm not saying you couldn't trim the fat off of a seven-year medical degree, but I'm willing to bet that at least you need at least more than four months. I don't think there's that much fat to cut. <laughs> at a certain point, you're hitting bone. <laughs> I I just absolutely love this idea that he was like, you know what? Credentials? No. The only credential I need is that I don't hate your face. And I can look <laughs> at it for the next four to five years. That was that was his primary requirement. Is just I just don't want to feel the urge to gut you every time you chew your food. <laughs> All of them, Amundsen personally selected, with the exception of Hjalmar Johansson, an expert dog driver and veteran of Nansen's own attempt on the North Pole. 
Johansson had joined Nansen in leaving, the, in leaving the Fram in a final push with skis and dog sleds and wintered with him on the Russian archipelago, Franz Joseph Land, Joseph's Land, due to the damage to their kayaks. During the excursion, Johansson had fallen through the ice and been rescued by Nansen and had survived a polar bear encounter where he took a blow to the head. <laughs> oh, oh, that's got to do things to a person. Yeah, like, the trauma, both physical and mental, has to be crazy. And (laughs) since he had struggled with alcoholism and death, Amundsen took on Johansson as a favor to Nansen, who had tried and failed to intervene in his friend's downward spiral. I would not be better as a person if I got attacked by a polar bear and took a pretty serious blow to the head. Gotta say. There is very little about a brain injury that will improve your personality, but who do you want on a f- potential five-year voyage through through the hellish, featureless ice? I know. I want a mentally and physically traumatized alcoholic. <laughs> Perfect. If you're Leonardo DiCaprio, they give you a Grammy for surviving a bear attack. Everyone else just gets irreparable brain damage. Uh, in order to deal with the long boredom of the drift, the Fram would have a library of 3,000 books a gramophone, and an extensive music collection, as well as ample wine and liquor. In... Fair. (laughs) In addition to relying on fresh meat to prevent scurvy, Amundsen ordered specialized pemmican containing oatmeal and vegetables. Likewise, the skis for the journey were specially designed, longer than usual to better better avoid falling into a crevasse. Oh, long skis. Truly the height of technology. In September 1909, however, newspapers published a report that two expeditions led by Americans, Dr. Frederick Cook and Robert Peary Sr., had already reached the North Pole in April 1908 and 1909, respectively. Oh, I'd be mad. (laughs) Oh, I'd be sauced. This immediately led to controversy, however, with Peary and his supporters engaging in a lengthy campaign to discredit Cook. As an aside, subsequent investigations cast doubt on Cook's claim to have even re- have, have reached the North Pole, as he was unable to produce detailed or original nav- navigation data verifying his achievement, which he claimed to have left in three boxes with American hunter Harry Whitney in Anoatok, Greenland. I was going to say, how do you prove that you did any of this? Not like you can take a selfie at the South Pole back in those days. How, you've got to be like, people have got to trust you to be like, you know what? Trust me. We, yeah. went, we went to the right chunk of ice. We definitely did not just play cards, dr- read books, and drink liquor on the ice outside the ship for 3,000 days. Basically what you're expected to do is you're expected to take pretty thorough navigational records, like take uh, take measurements of your position using the sun. And if people find notable like, basically the same way that you test to see if a, uh, a study is good or worthy of trusting. You check to see if the data meets scientific, like, variables and makes sense given what you said you were doing. Interesting. Uh, Whitney had attempted to bring the boxes back to the U.S. aboard Peary's ship, but Peary had refused. Whitney instead left them in a cache in Greenland, which was never relocated. Uh, in December 1909, a commission by the University of Copenhagen ruled that the evidence submitted by Cook failed to prove that he had reached the pole. His reputation never recovered. Is this the key to this poor guy's legacy is like in somebody's attic in Greenland? 
And for a long time, Peary's own claim went undisputed, as it was accepted uncritically by the National Geographic Society, which had likewise sponsored the expedition and limited access to Peary's record, preventing independent audit. Decades later, review found distinct discrepancies between the records between the distances recorded while Peary was accompanied by a navigator, around 13 miles a day, and those recorded after the navigator turned back with the rest of the support party, literally doubling on the way to the pole and quadrupling on the way back. Is he Usain Bolt? He's claiming <laughs> that they went 26 miles a day every day? Every day. Not to mention on the way back, he would be claiming, um, uh... 52 miles a day. Is he a pony? Like, that's... Yeah, is he a gazelle? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they quadruple on the way back before slowing again when the team returns to the point where they they and the support party had parted ways. Uh, Not only... Mm -hmm. Which is basically just expanding the margins on your paper before you submit it. (laughs) Yeah, I totally sprinted for days at a time to the South Pole, you guys. The North Pole, yes. The North Pole, yes, the North Pole. I am definitely, definitely a camel. Like, come on, (laughs) dude. Yeah, not only that, but Peary's records claim to travel in a straight line from the pole and back. Impossible given difficult, quick conditions on the ground. That's the laziest fakery ever. I just it's went so dumb this way. Like just, just make it a little jiggly, dude. You don't have to do much. Wiggles a pencil. An aerial flight over the pole on May 9th, nineteen twenty-six, by Americans Richard Byrd and Floyd Bennett was likewise discredited based on discrepancies in the data, meaning that the first verified, undisputed human arrival at the North Pole. Uh, was a 16-man expedition aboard the airship Norge uh, on May 12th, uh, 1926, led by none other than Roald Amundsen. Airship. <laughs> it just sounds like a fun way to travel. I want to go on one now. I mean, I, I know what an airship is, but it does kind of make it sound like they just took the Hindenburg to the North Pole. I mean, yeah, that's basically what they did. I, I guess. I mean, That's 100% what they did. They just blimped over yeah. the north. That sounds like a bitchin' way to spend your time. I mean, they, they went with the drift plan, but a slightly faster one. <laughs> Air currents, why didn't we think of that all along? Uh, when asked back in 1909, Amundsen demurred to endorse either explorer's account and replied that there was still likely something left to do. He knew, however, that without the glamour of the pole spurring public interest, he would struggle to maintain funding for future expeditions. Indeed, the month leading up to the expedition, public support waned and the Norwegian parliament declined a request for an additional, uh, an additional 25,000 kroner, forcing Amundsen to mortgage his own home in order to keep the expedition solvent. Priorities. He decided to delay the polar drift towards the North Pole. Instead, he would head south. Oh, good. So he spends years preparing to go to the North Pole, territory he's somewhat familiar with, and at the last minute is like, mm, fuck it, no. It's not special enough. No, he he turns on a dime. Like a bad Instagram influencer who has to change vacation spots because everyone else already has pictures in Paris. Amundsen did not publicize this alteration for fear that existing backers might pull out, that Nansen might revoke his blessing to use Fram, and that the North Parliament may, might suppress the expedition for fear of offending the British. They're not. They're just not going to mention anybody. We're we're just secretly no. going to the South Pole. 
Secret South Pole Expedition. He told only his brother and his second-in-command navigator Torvald Nilsson about the change in plans. Oh, he didn't tell the whole crew. Surprise, motherfuckers. You would shit yourself the first time you got off the boat and there was a fucking penguin looking at you. Had Scott discovered this omission, it might have been awkward, as he had even sent Amundsen a set of instruments so that the two expeditions could take comparative measurements at opposite ends of the globe. When Scott came to Norway to test his motor sledges, Scott's telephone calls to Amundsen's residence went unanswered. Hmm. Upon deciding to travel to Antarctica, Amundsen produced uh, 116 high-quality North Greenland sledge dogs, a breed similar to a large husky. That's a lot of fucking sled dogs. That's a <laughs> lot of dog. Uh, training began immediately once they were collected aboard the ship in July 1910, with each of the 19 men responsible for his own group of dogs. And the stench on the ship, I can only imagine. <laughs> also, I love that the dogs have more training than the ship's surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I just, at a certain it, point, you're just hoping not to get sick. It's like the American healthcare system. <laughs> Shortly before sailing out of Norway on August 9th, Amundsen looped the junior, the two junior officers in on the change of plans. But evasiveness on the part of the officers led to confusion and low morale among the rest of the crew. To Fuchal, uh, Fuchal Madeira, a Portuguese-controlled island off of the northwest coast of Africa. On September 9th, the day that they were to depart, Amundsen told the rest of the crew of his planned detour to the South Pole en route to the North Pole. <laughs> Left the, left and that is late. how he put it. That oh, is detour. how he put it. We're going to detour to the exact opposite end of the globe. <laughs> and asked each man whether or not he was willing to continue. To which all agreed. What Although was he going to do? They with... are off the coast of Africa. <laughs> I was going to say, one, he's kind of the ride home. And two, what is he going to do if they say no? <laughs> you have to find some random Moroccans who want to go to the South Pole. What if your quote unquote doctor says no? <laughs> well, I mean, you don't have you, you don't have time to send the ship's engineer for a four month crash course. <laughs> you lose pretty much no medical expertise. It's not as great a loss as you think. <laughs> One of the dogs could probably do it. <laughs> you got a band aid and a textbook. You know roughly as much as that guy. He knows broadly what the spleen is. He's just not quite sure what it does. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Amundsen wrote a lengthy explanation, which he sent to Nansen, outlining his decision and asking for forgiveness. He likewise <laughs> sent a telegram to Scott. Live your best life, little dude. The Terra Nova had set sail on June 15th, 1910 from Cardiff, Wales, at first without Scott, who was held up with final arrangements for the expedition, and took a passenger liner to rejoin the ship in South Africa. In early October, he similarly left the ship to fundraise in Australia, while the Terra Nova continued on to New Zealand. Waiting for him in Melbourne was Amundsen's telegram. Beg leave to inform you, am headed sa heading south. Amundsen. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really much of an apology, it's just sort of, this is happening. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, he apologizes to Fritjof, but he's not apologizing to Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Scott and the Terra Nova departed New Zealand from Port Chalmers on November 29th, overladen with additional supplies. They were a few days thereafter struck by a storm, and after the pumps failed, were forced to bail the ship out with buckets. 
As a result, they lost one dog, two ponies, around 300 liters of gasoline, and 10,000 kilos of coal. On the 10th of December, the Terra Nova became stuck in the pack ice, where it remained for 20 days, consuming a further 6,200 kilos. The Terra Nova therefore made land on January 4th, barely ahead of the Fram, and made base January 5th on Ross Island in McMurdo Sound six miles south of the Nimrod encampment on what Scott christened Cape Evans after his second-in-command, who still had an eye, Lieutenant Edward Evans. Uh, <laughs> Flattering. <laughs> he, he has the most eyes of any second-in-command thus far mentioned. <laughs> Actually, no. Uh, Nilsson probably also had two eyes. The but he, he's, he's doing all right. <laughs> two out of two ain't bad. <laughs> One of the motor sledges put to work unloading the ship trundled less than a hundred yards, broke through the ice, and sank to the bottom of the sea. <laughs> they are really not doing so hot with these things. Yeah, this is this is already going poorly. <laughs> I mean, they're they're basically just bladeless lawnmowers. It's just an engine on wheels. How is it yeah. this difficult? When news of Amundsen's deception reached Norway, Nansen gave his blessing. Oh, there was otherwise widespread public backlash and funding plummeted. Observers in Britain were similarly appalled. The crew of the Fram knew nothing of this, and on January 14th, they arrived at what would be their base camp, called Framheim, on the Bay of Wales. I just love the idea that, like, putting, investing money into just a bunch of idiots going to Antarctica was just a thing you could invest your money in back then. I have no idea... Is this expedition making money, or is this like a Patreon situation? This appears to be a Patreon situation. You are, like, you are literally <laughs> subscribing to a list. You are modern-day GoFunding me <laughs> to, like, get a bunch of assholes to the South Pole. You're just like, oh yeah, like, it, it's basically the same instinct that has been going on throughout hi human history, where, like, a dude on the street offers to eat a brick in front of you for a nickel, and you're just like... Fuck it, I want to see something. <laughs> or in this case, you don't get to see anything. It's just this guy is going to assure you that he stood on a particular chunk of ice and you're going to be like, ah, this was worth it. Like, most of this can be filed under nationalism is a hell of a drug. <laughs> Fair. In 1842, James Clark Ross had discovered the Bay of Wales, a natural ice harbor dipping into the face of the Great Eight Ice Barrier. It was named in 1908 by Shackleton, who dismissed it as unsafe to land due to its apparent instability and numerous large icebergs. Amundsen had made a study of the accounts of all those who had gone to Antarctica, including Scott, Shackleton, and Ross. Due to the instability of shifting sea ice, it would be dangerous to set up any long-term structure upon it. However, Amundsen concluded, based on Ross and Shackleton's reports of the same large feature in the floating ice shelf, in the same place nearly 70 years apart, meant that there was land underneath the barrier at the Bay of Wales causing the formation. Which is, incidentally, correct. <laughs> hmm. This meant that Framheim was around 70 miles closer to the pole than the British camp. And in early February, in early February the Terra Nova, under the command of Le uh, Navy Lieutenant Harry Pennell, had attempted to land an exploratory group led by ex-naval officer Victor Campbell at the shore on the eastern edge of the barrier, named Edward VII Land during Scott's first voyage. After failing to find appropriate ground to set down, the Terra Nova returned westward to deposit the expedition team on Victoria Land instead, and came across the Fram in the Bay of Wales. 
The men of the Fram were friendly and invited Pennell, Campbell, and a couple of others to lunch at the main hut in Framheim. Pennell and Campbell likewise hosted Amundsen and his lieutenants aboard the Terra Nova the next day. Terribly civilized. As members of rival expeditions, there was some awkwardness over lunch, as neither party wished to reveal useful information about their own preparations. Amundsen <laughs> asked after, after Scott's motor sledges, to which Campbell responded that one was already on terra firma, a reference to the sled currently sitting on the seafloor. Though Amundsen <laughs> took it as possible indication that Scott may have already crossed the ice shelf. <laughs> okay, I give him points. That's a clever answer. <laughs> like it is that is not half bad <laughs> that's a pretty good joke a hundred years later <laughs> gotta say you made me giggle he, he Mr. Campbell you made me giggle <laughs> uh, that's that's pretty good I just, I just love the image of like they're inviting each other over for dinner so they're just throwing tarps over all visible equipment <laughs> They're just hurriedly shooing some some sledge dolls dogs underneath a canvas. <laughs> They're like writing home to their respective nations. Like he's copying me. Stop looking, screen cheater, Scre- cheating, cheating. Double game screen. Uh, likewise, in early February, Amundsen and a small group of. A uh, small ground team of nine began work on laying out depots, while the Fram, with its remaining crew of ten, was to head out to avoid becoming trapped in the ice and further on a mission to collect oceanographic data before returning to pick up the ground team the following year. Uh, based on reports from the Discovery and Nimrod teams, Amundsen and the three men he took on the first depot-laying expedition on February 10th expected the terrain to be difficult, but in- instead found the surface of the barrier no different than any other glacier. Helmer Hansen, veteran of Amundsen's expedition navigating the Northwest Passage, drove the first sled, the other two sleds in a single file behind him. All three pulled by six dogs each, with a sledless man skiing ahead of the caravan and Amundsen at the back. Most of the Nordic team were able skiers and easily kept pace with the dogs. To reach the site of the first depot, just 100 miles away at at 80 degrees south, Amundsen originally budgeted for a pace of around 17 miles a day. Uh, on the 11th, the team managed 17 miles in just six short hours and managed a total of 23 miles before they stopped for the day. Well, it's it's not bad. I mean, it's not as fast as that guy sprinting to the pole at 52 <laughs> miles a day, but <laughs> it's respectable. I mean, at a certain point, you are part kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> On February 14th, 11 a.m., they reached the 80th parallel and built the depot, laying down an imperial ton of provisions and marking the spot with a 12-foot snow cairn with a flag on top. Oh, what a fun Valentine's Day idea. Yeah, just cute date ideas. Build a stone, build a snow cairn that marks a Mm. cache of a thousand fucking pounds of provisions. (laughs) (laughs) A cute apocalypse date ideas. You know, the way 2020 is going, it's like, well, when the rats come, we will we will live. Uh, they turned around and began their return to Framheim the same day, sticking a dried fish vertically in the snow to mark their trail. Is that how- Do you want ants? Because <laughs> this is how you get ants. More likely a penguin's gonna come eat your trail. <laughs> Shortening their rest periods on the journey back, they arrived at base at 9.30pm on February 15th, only five days and 12 hours after they had left. 
On the 26th of February, the second depot expedition left, this time with eight men, seven sledges, and 42 dogs. They encountered significantly more difficulty than they had on the first trip, with lower visibility and colder temperatures. They followed the fish trail to the first depot at 80 South, the forerunner tossing the fish to the dogs as they went. (laughs) There they modified the 80 South depot marker by placing 10 flags on either side of the depot, east and west, spaced 900 yards apart. After laying down a second depot at the 82nd parallel, three men and three sleds turned back while the others continued on. It's like that, you ever that puzzle you used to have to do as a kid? You've got to get a fox, a chicken, and a bag of feed across the river, but the boat only holds two. That's sort of exactly what this problem is. How do we get supplies and people all through Antarctica? We only have limited ways to do it. It's a very high stakes version of that children's game. Although I don't know, I I just was just I was just so terrified of what that fox might do to that chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Kept you up at night. But like in, instead of like a, a dead chicken, what you have to worry about is several frozen men <laughs> whose corpses will be found by future generations. Wonderful. Three days later, on March six, three lead dogs of a team driven by Hansen fell into a chasm. The rest of the dogs stopped, bracing themselves, and the men were able to haul the dogs back out unharmed using their harnesses. Oh, look at that. We've tried, we've tried retrieving our animals from the crevice. We never tried that before. <laughs> Instead of just letting the ice eat them. <laughs> <laughs> they belong to the ice now. They reached the 82nd parallel on March 8th. March 9th, they built a third depot. Originally, they had planned to reach at least the 83rd parallel and create a fourth depot, but due to the exhaustion of the dogs, they decided to instead leave one sled at the third and return to Framheim. The dogs were deeply weakened on the return journey and often required a whip to continue. Eight dogs in in total died over the entire trip, and the cruel handling required by the rough circumstances deeply unsettled the men. Oh, I mean, I know they have a lot of backup dogs. They planned for this, but still. They they have reserves. They can just spam dogs all over over the ice. (laughs) They have a little army just shitting into the ice here. (laughs) That is a lot of dog poo. And I don't think you have enough men to clean it up. (laughs) <laughs> oh, so, you just leave it. You you, you don't just, bother. You just leave what are you going to do? Bring it with you? You're just hauling hundreds of pounds of dog shit? No. The dog shit's probably still there. Just fossilized to in the permafrost. <laughs> That's the real threat of global warming. Just <laughs> unearthing hundreds of pounds of dog shit. <laughs> God damn it. It's like every the backyard every spring. <laughs> <laughs> On a global level. March 31st, the final depot party, consisting of seven men on six sleds, led by Johansson and drawn by 36 dogs, left Framheim. In addition to the provisions for the trip, they brought with them 2,400 pounds of seal meat. They returned on April 11th, delayed due to straying into a field of crevasses, to make final preparations for winter, which included laying stores of an additional 60 tons of seal meat. It's a lot of seal meat. The depot's journey had exposed some tensions between the men, but particularly between Amundsen and Johansson. Hmm. Over the winter, the Norse tested and repaired their equipment, including rebuilding for uh, rebuilding uh, sleds and reducing their weight with the help of co- carpenter Olaf Bjaland, 
The lowest temperature recorded at Framheim that winter was negative 74 Fahrenheit, or negative 59 degrees Celsius. (laughs) That is brisk. (laughs) Spring was slow in coming, but by early September, temperatures were consistently warm enough that the Norwegian party felt comfortable proceeding with their final voyage to the South Pole, though Johansson warned that it was still too cold. They left noon September 8th, with eight men and seven sleds each drawn by 13 dogs leaving the cook behind alone. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. Fuck your soup. (laughs) Uh, This proved premature, as on September 11th, the overnight temperature dropped to nearly negative 68 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 55 Celsius. Oh my god. So cold that the teams could not see one another because of the condensation of their breath so obscured visibility. If that's rough. <laughs> that is rough. Like, you are so physically chapped that the distinction between your lips and the rest of your face is meaningless. And you're fogging <laughs> up just literally everything. You, you're making your own fog. You're basically just a dry ice machine. The next day, the liquid inside Amundsen's compass was frozen, and the cold forced them to camp and wait for clear weather. Oh, that's a bad sign. It kind of reminds me how, like... Even in, like, Edmonton, Alberta, like, up in Canada, like, phones will just start dying at 10% battery power because, like, All they the can't time. handle how cold it is. The battery is <laughs> like, oh, no. No, they're no. Like, they're like, mother, father, <clears throat> I didn't realize you lived halfway up Satan's sphincter and I am not designed for this. All the time in Edmonton, your phone, even higher than that, it'll be on, like, minus, t- it'll be at, like, 20% left and it's just like, goodbye. Goodbye, cruel world. I see Steve Jobs beckoning toward me towards the light. (laughs) (laughs) So, a compass malfunction is a very old school version of that. Uh, Even their specially designed tent, dyed black to retain heat, was of little help. Deciding that they had simply started too early in the season, Amundsen instead proceeded to the 80 South Depot, where they unloaded their sleds, then returned to Framheim. Several of the dogs froze to death, while others were loaded onto sleds when they grew too weak to go on. On September 16th, Amundsen ordered a full-speed push for Framheim, and joined naval gunner Oscar Wisting on his sled. Wisting, Amundsen, and Hansen returned first, followed by carpenters Jorgen Stuberud and Bjaland two hours later, and Sver Hassel, dog expert, shortly behind. Johansen and naval officer... Christian Perstrud came in over six hours after them, as Perstrud's dogs had given out and his feet were badly frostbitten. Ooh. You when don't get too attached to all those toes. Amundsen asked for explanation the next day for the delay. Johansson became angry and accused Amundsen of abandoning, abandoning them. Amundsen had reduced the planned number for the polar party in order to likewise reduce the time required to break camp, and he removed Johansson from the party for insubordination and placed him under the command of Prestrud, alongside Stubrud, on a separate mission to explore Edward, the seventh land to the east. I was gonna say, you can only remove him from your party, so, like, he's still there. He's still on the expedition. To be clear, like, Amundsen is not removing him for being right about the cold, and he's not removing him for (laughs) being angry at being left behind. He's being removed because he's just too emotional. 
This false start was in part due to the Norwegians' anxiety over being beaten by the English, who the Norwegians suspected might be in a warmer area due to their proximity to greater land masses. Little did they know, the vulnerability of the ponies and the motor sledges to cold would delay the British significantly. <laughs> Don't bring horses to Antarctica. It's, it's just such an important <laughs> life lesson. I cannot yeah, emphasize if, this if, enough. If you, if you take nothing else away from this podcast... Don't eat lead and don't bring ponies to the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, all the wisdom you will ever need. On October 19th, after several days of warm weather, they made their second attempt. This again nearly ended in disaster due to heavy mist and an uncautious pace. The lead dogs of Hansen's team twice nearly fell into a crevasse and had to be pulled up by their harnesses. Amundsen pled caution, but to little avail, and at one point, Bjalan's sled began sinking as snow drained into a crevice beneath him. That is some action movie shit. Hansen and Hassel tied a rope to the sled and unhitched the dogs. In order to rescue the now hanging sled, Amundsen set Wisting sent Wisting down on a rope to untie the crates for the rest of the men to hoist them up one by one. None of these men cared if they lived or not. Just none of them seem that invested in being alive. This is a full-on Norwegian suicide club. <laughs> <laughs> they care so much more about reaching the South Pole than they do about, like, continuing to breathe air. It's like, do all of you have murder charges back in Waco? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what are you running from? Do you, do all, are you, all of you in debt? To a mobster? <laughs> I'm starting to wonder if Axel Halberg is an alias. Gotta, gotta keep those patrons happy. Just living under an assumed identity, dying in the Arctic alongside an exhausted dog. After rescuing the sled, the weather cleared, revealing that they had were in fact surrounded on all sides by extensive crevices like a shattered pane of glass. Ooh, that's After not good. After extricating themselves, however, the journey to the barrier went smoothly even as they stopped every three miles to lay down snow cairns to mark their trail. They reached the first depot on the 80th parallel on October 26th. It was misty on October 4th when they arrived at the 82nd parallel, and they were unable to locate the depot, but on the next day, the weather had cleared, allowing them to spot one of the lateral flags leading to the right spot. They moved steadily south, establishing another depot at each parallel they re reached after the 82nd. While Ooh. Scott would have taken the path Shackleton had found up the Beardmore Glacier, Amundsen's team was 250 miles to the east and would have to find their own way up. When they arrived at the foothills, they cached all but 60 days' worth of supplies. After searching for some days, they found a steep path onto the plateau, up what they named the Axel Heilberg Glacier, uh, after an important financial backer. Everybody gets a glacier. Cadbury should be pissed that they didn't get their own glacier. It's really a disappointment. They should have they should have waited for the second expedition. <laughs> <laughs> they climbed to the top over several difficult days, with wraps with ropes wrapped around the runners of the sled as brakes during descents. On the twentieth of November, they reached the top. They had lost ten of the fifty two dogs they had started with, and on the twenty first, they regretfully called twenty four weakest for meat each man killing the dogs from their own team, the morning Ooh. ringing with pistol shots, and ditched one of the sleds so that they could continue on with the strongest 18 dogs hitched to the remaining three. They just had a dog-murdering festival. Oh, yeah. This camp they named the Butcher's Shop. <laughs> oh, that's morbid. 
Yeah, just murder your own dogs, because apparently we're the Russian military. <laughs> the worst version of Build-A-Bear, just murder a dog. <laughs> However, as they were adjusting the loads on the remaining sleds, a blizzard swept in, leaving them stuck with the remnants of the dog massacre for four days. The snow continued on the fifth day, but they took a vote and decided to push on regardless. <laughs> but you want to spend a fifth day just surrounded by frozen dog viscera? <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, I would not. I choose death by storm. It, it is slightly... I mean, I would rather spend another day surrounded by frozen dog viscera than I would surrounded by warm... Dog viscera. Gently rotting dog viscera. <laughs> I mean, I guess, but I choose the storm either way. If, if I gotta be surrounded by dog viscera, I'd rather it be cold. <laughs> uh, That's an important preference. Please, pe- please feel free to put that on my tombstone. <laughs> oh, that'll make your mom cry for sure. Uh, with the thin air and rough, grainy ice beneath them, it was initially difficult going, but they soon began to pick up speed as the ground beneath them sloped downward. Sensing something strange ahead, Amundsen ordered what th- that they make camp until visibility cleared. A few days later, on the 28th, they discovered what it was ahead. A second, crevasse-ridden glacier blocking their path. Hell Yeah! Amundsen and Hansen scouted ahead while the others made a depot and eventually found a navigable bridge and small gap between two mounds of ice and snow they called Hell's Gate. For five days, they struggled through the second glacier, through cold air, unstable ice, surfaces too slick for the dog's paws to gain traction, and impenetrable blizzards that forced them to stop and huddle in their tent. Finally, on the 4th of December onward, their altitude remained stable, indicating that they had reached the true plateau. I'd be so pissed. You spend days just slogging through a big bucket of suck, and then you arrive at an either bigger bucket of suck. Uh, it's just an unending bucket of suck. You've already killed all your dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you own is just covered in dog blood. Like, just, what a great time. It's just... It's just rough labor interrupted by dog murder, and I'm not fond. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not this is not a this is not a spring break you brag to your buddies about. <laughs> you know, I I keep trying to impress my friends with my stories from Antarctica, but they keep getting real hung up about the dog murder. <laughs> <laughs> just the air rung with shots as they executed just a dozen dogs. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> You're just hanging out like minus 50 degree weather eating dog meat with your best pals you can't stand. On December 7th, the sun came out for long enough for them to get a reading of their location. 88 degrees, 16 minutes south. Only 7 minutes off of Shackleton's record. On Amundsen's orders, Hansen fastened a small Norwegian flag to his sled as they passed the 88-33 mark. Just teabagging him, really. They placed another depot down that night and spent the 8th preparing for their final push. On the 9th, they departed, focusing only on their goal. On the 12th, they were startled and confused by a dark shape that suddenly appeared on the horizon, which turned out to be only mirage-warped dog shit. Uh, No. (laughs) Yes. Seriously? Yes. (laughs) They got freaked out by their own dog shit. (laughs) God damn it, Antarctica. Just the worst. Uh, on the 13th, they camped at 89 degrees, 
45 minutes south, just a tad over 17 miles from the pole. As they neared the pole, Hansen asked Amundsen to take the lead with the excuse that he needed a forerunner in order to make the dogs go, though the truth was that he wished Amundsen to have the honor of arriving first. Aww. It's, it's heartwarming. Face frozen, but heartwarm. <laughs> <laughs> My true OTP. <laughs> At 3 p.m. December 14th, 1911, their instruments indicated that they had reached the pole, an empty space free of any tracks or trace of their rivals. As a group, they raised the Norwegian flag, which they had attached to two ski poles. And while initially confused and unsure of their achievement, they eventually grew more confident and took pictures of the flag. Hooray! Like, they are, they are genuinely baffled here. They're just like, we, we won? Did, we <laughs> now won? what? <laughs> now, now what? We weren't expecting to win. <laughs> like take this... some selfies, look around. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, fingers above the captain's head. Ah! Like, these are a bunch of chronic <laughs> underdogs who thought they were in a desperate fight that they would naturally lose, and they have shown up, and the biggest man on the opposite team has just kicked himself in the dick. And they are <laughs> confused but delighted. <laughs> I mean, they got here by following a dog shit mirage and a <laughs> compass they've got to defrost in the sun. So, <laughs> it's a hard-fought victory. The next day, they explored and took observations. Then, after determining that the pole was in fact a few more miles away, they broke camp, jettisoning yet another sled, then traveled to the true pole, where they again set up camp and took more observations. If I made it to the South Pole after, like, months, like, and then you finally think you've made it, and the guy's like, actually, we have to schlep 15 more miles of ice and snow, I would probably just beat a hole through the ice and kill myself. <laughs> yeah, just like, whoops, <laughs> wrong spot, guys. I just, I would, on the power of my own anger, fire myself into the sun. <laughs> I would, I would join the skidoo in the depths. <laughs> in sheer rage. Embrace me, Poseidon. I want no more of this bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, on the 18th of December, they began the return journey, determined to return before Scott with the news. By 4 a.m. January 25th, 10 days before scheduled with only 11 surviving dogs, they had arrived at Framheim, having covered around 1,860 miles at an average of 18.8 miles per day. They killed 130 dogs. I mean, PETA would have blown a blood vessel if they'd existed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blowing a blood vessel now. Yeah, this is just an upsetting amount of dog death. Like, we always talk about all the dogs we fired into the atmosphere to try to, like, hit reach the moon. But no one talks about all the dogs we just ran to their deaths in the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's more than I thought it was going to be. It's a lot of dog. Honest. It's a lot of dog. <laughs> but what then of Scott? Like the Norwegians, the British had begun letting, laying out depots in early 1911. They had started a full week, two weeks earlier on January 27th. They immediately started burning through ponies like an edgy remake of the Saddle Club, including a few which oh, they no. got trapped in a patch of sea ice that broke away. Scott managed to personally rescue a dog team that fell into a crevasse, but only two out of eight ponies that went on the first depot mission made it back alive. 
That's such a cartoon way to lose horses. They're just standing <laughs> on a piece of ice that breaks away and they just float off into the ocean. Uh, what nimrods. Not to quote Lo- uh, Looney Tunes alum Bugs Bunny. <laughs> oh. Uh, Because each of these different means of transportation moved at very different speeds, the plan was for them to leave base camp in stages. First the motor sledge team on October 24th, then the pony teams. So they're leaving in order of most to least useless. (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, November 1st, (laughs) Scott and the main party left base camp with the ponies. By the same day, both remaining motor sledges had broken down and the men were ordered to haul as much of the load as they could the final 150 miles to the meeting point at 80 degrees 30 minutes south. Just big metal garbage cans, these things. They'd be more useful at the bottom of the ocean. At least they could provide a (laughs) home for fish. Uh, The rest of the party caught up to them on the 21st of November. The first of the support teams turned back three days later when two members of the motor party peeled off. Uh, the, the ponies struggled with the summer terrain, slowed down by how their small hooves sank through the snow and how their sweat caused them to shiver. Captain Lawrence Oates of the British Army Cavalry hadn't trusted the horse sh- snowshoes and had left them behind at the camp. Oh, good. Naturally. Naturally. <laughs> the party was snowed in by a blizzard on December 5th near the path up the Beardmore Glacier. They dug themselves out on November 9th, having consumed a fair degree of rations, at which point they shot the ponies and left their meat as a depot as planned. In December 11th, two more men turned back north with the dogs, leaving the remaining 12 to continue on without any animal assistance. December 20th, they reached the Polar Plateau and laid down an additional depot on the upper glacier. December 22nd, at 85 degrees, 20 minutes south, Scott sent back four more men, led by... Uh, led by senior medical officer Atkinson. The blizzard at the foot of the glacier had put them six days behind Shackleton's timeline on the same journey, a preoccupation of Scott's. But despite the difficult ascent, better conditions atop the polar plateau allowed them to quickly make time. And by the 30th of December, they had, they had caught up. December 31st, they cached supplies a few miles out from the 87th parallel. The entire way along, it had been unclear to the team who would carry on ahead as the final polar party. Uh, In fact, Scott only decided on January 3rd, with the rest turning back on the 4th, led by the second-in-command, Lieutenant Edward Evans. It's like a weird version of The Bachelor. Like, you get a rose. (laughs) You get a fleshy chunk of horse. You get to go to the South Pole. Like, I mean, for a man as difficult as Scott tended to be, maybe it makes a lot of sense to figure who who can survive without him biting them in the face this long. <laughs> uh, Scott had originally planned for a four-person final party, but at the last minute, he expanded that to five, deciding that they had sufficient food to bear the extra man. Oh, I'm sure that's a decision that won't haunt him at all. Haunt him like a sightless cave penguin. <laughs> these are these are the snap decisions that you want to just kind of eyeball at the last minute. It's definitely a good idea. The final party consisted of Scott, his friend Dr. Wilson, Welsh Petty Officer Edgar Evans, the strongest of the party and a skilled preparer and MacGyver of equipment, Oates, and Lieutenant, Lieutenant Henry Bowers, a short, sturdy man with a cheerful disposition who had originally joined the party in charge of the ponies and was surprised and delighted to be selected for the final push. Aw, he's doing his best. 
Evans was cho- chosen over Thomas Crean, a hardy Irish seaman who had been saved a great deal of exertion doing to be part doing to being part of the pony team and Surgeon Edwards Atkinson's own recommendation for the polar party. The team immediately ran into trouble because Bowers had stowed his skis at the last depot, putting him out of rhythm with the others pulling the sled. God damn it, Bowers. When skiing became particularly difficult on the 6th, uh, Scott ordered the, all the skis dumped, and after the party spent very little time trudging through the snow t- the next day, he was argued into going back for them. <laughs> Nobody gets any skis. Yeah, you might be the world's most demanding boss, but no one is going to slog through that much snow for you. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody is good at this. Nobody. I mean, Raoul's pretty good at it. But as previously stated, he's less man than Yeti now. <laughs> I feel like all of them are. How do you adapt back to polite society after something like this? <laughs> Poorly. <laughs> like you've spent months just eating dog with your bare hands. Like How do you go back to sipping tea in a parlor? Not to mention the several months beforehand you spent making friends with those dogs. <laughs> all of it is weird. It does things to a person. <laughs> After a day spent sheltering from high winds, on January 9th, Scott's calculations showed that they had crossed Shackleton's farthest south point of 88 degrees and 23 minutes south, which he marked in his diary with a somewhat indelicately large record. Uh, (laughs) They had yet to see any track or trace from Amundsen's party and failed to realize that he might have taken another path than the proven trail discovered by Shackleton and the Nimrod team or that they may be so far behind the Norwegians that the drifting snow had already covered their tracks. At this point, the Terra Nova team was physically exhausted, short on rations, short on fuel, and dehydrated because of the low priority of melting additional snow. January 16th, they proceeded with a single sled. It was then that Lieutenant Bowers, leading the party, spotted a black speck in the distance, which was not dog shit, and when they reached it the next day, January 17th, 1912, they saw a black tent topped by a small Norwegian flag marking the South Pole. <laughs> and I bet they were goddamn furious. I would be shocked. Like, you know what that feeling when, like, you've definitely grievously injured yourself, but you're kind of distanced <laughs> from the pain? That's the kind of emotional state you can expect me to be in. After trudging through that much bullshit, and with all of that bullshit left to go through, only to find that I have been beaten by a team of cheeky Norwegians. (laughs) I'd lose my goddamn ever-loving mind. I would still be gibbering in the snow to this day. I would be a demon haunting the wastes. (laughs) my fury would levitate my soul out of my body and it would shoot all the way to the moon (laughs) on a calm day if you listen hard you'll hear Jessica going god damn it (laughs) Amundsen (laughs) likewise on the 17th they followed the Norwegians track southward before losing them in the snow then used their own navigational equipment to find the true pole on the 18th, they found another small tent with a signed plaque hanging from a tent pole, a small cache of supplies, and a note from Amundsen to Scott, politely asking him to li- deliver a letter he had written to King Hakon. 
<laughs> Which so he just teabagged this dude basically, just rubbing it he in. He politely unleashed his testicles from his pants and gently settled them on Scott's forehead, where he rubbed them around for several indelicate minutes, achieving frostbite. <laughs> <laughs> That same day, they turned north, demoralized and struggling to pull the sleds over rough terrain. Scott and Wilson were relatively healthy compared to the others, who suffered varying levels of frostbite, especially Evans, who had exposed his hands to the cold for a period of hours while repairing the sleds on December 31st. On the night of the 20th, and again on the 24th, they were hit by blizzards, an ominous sign of the changing weather. Wilson began to suffer from snow blindness, again due to his insistence on sketching, rendering him unable to ski. So he handed off to his, his off to Bowers and walked instead. He's just too busy drawing the ice. Yeah, like what are you looking at? You've been, one, you've been here before, but two, focus. <laughs> <laughs> what is there to draw? A big line across the page, and then a big crevice with a dead horse at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, with big X's for eyes. Eh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On January 19th, Wilson pulled a tendon and once more had to give up, up his skis. And by this point, parts of Oates' feet were black with frostbite, and both of Evans' hands were infected and losing fingernails. Oh, you're not getting those back. Once your feet are black, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Those are not coming back. Yeah, that is lack of oxygen reaching your flesh. <laughs> like, this that's, is that's necrosis. Coming off. It's like it's not good. Yellow is a bad color in these circumstances. Black means amputation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Either yeah, that or gone. a long time spent in a hyperbaric chamber. Oh, uh, that's not available. <laughs> which is not available. <laughs> like, at best, there is a Norwegian hundreds of miles away who once looked at a painting that Hoda had a foot. <laughs> <laughs> You're set. Yeah, like, there's not a lot that Dr. Wilson can do for you at this point. February 6th, they made the Upper Glacier Depot with only a little bit of pemmican and tea left. This depot itself only had five days ration, and the next day, the next depot was at least five days away. Even so, they spent time collecting around 30 pounds of fossils, as planned, during the descent down the glacier. Oh, they're so bad at this. Just focus. Like, I understand the scientific mission, but please, focus. You're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> the fossils don't mean anything if you can't- if you don't actually live long enough to get them back. Uh, those fossils actually did become incredibly important later. They were used as part of the- body of evidence that to, to lend credence to the theory of continental drift, but eat first, fossils later. <laughs> you can come back for those. <laughs> like You don't have to get them now while you have terrible technology and possibly scurvy. They found the Middle Glacier Depot on a particularly difficult day, where each member of the team had fallen and stumbled repeatedly on the crevasse to drain, especially Evans, who Scott relieved from hauling duty, hauling duty instead limping along and falling further and further behind. It is speculated in hindsight that Evans likely struck his head during one or many of these falls, and his hands and nose had by this point begun to rot. Oh, that's not good. February 16th, 18 miles from the lower glacier depot, Evans collapsed. The next morning- He's got 
bits falling off him like he's the Sandman just dissolving. Like he is coming to pieces and they are still hundreds of miles away from where they need to go. Oh, that's not good. The next morning, when Scott inquired as to his condition, Evans responded quite well, but he was again removed from hauling responsibilities a few short miles later. He again fell behind, so Scott called a lunch stop to allow him to catch up. When he failed to grow closer, they rushed back to him, where he knelt in his, with his bare hands on the ground, staring blankly at them. Not a good sign. Paradoxical undressing. Very bad sign of psychological symptoms during hypothermia. Yes, I was going to say, I don't have four months of medical training, but I have had hypothermia, <laughs> and it, it sucks. When you hit the point where you start to get really warm, that's when you are in some serious danger. Scott asked Evans what was wrong, to which Evans replied that he didn't know, but that he thought he might have fainted. They brought him to his feet, but he fainted again after a few steps. He never regained consciousness, dying in the night. Oh, he's with the horses now. As they say in these parts, he ate the volcanic soil. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) On the 17th, the remaining four reached the lower glacier depot, and it's fuel, biscuits, and plentiful pony meat. (laughs) (laughs) Everything a growing boy wants. (laughs) Pony meat, part of complete breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Ahead of them lay 300 miles to the largest depot, the one-ton depot, with three smaller depots along the way. Evan's last days had cost them valuable time and supplies, but without him, there would be additional rations for each at every depot. (laughs) Damn it, Evans. (laughs) Why couldn't you die faster? (laughs) After one ton, they still had another 150 miles before base. Like the first trip back across the barrier... They used the northward winds to carry them. They still ran into navigational difficulties with the fog, which made it difficult to follow the line of cairns. They reached the next depot on the 23rd, which contained notes from the previous parties and sufficient food, eight days ration, but less fuel than ideal to reach the depot after, 80 miles away. And you might be wondering, how the fuck did they not have enough fuel? Surely they knew how much fuel it would take them. (laughs) What had happened was... Due to the hot temperatures of the Antarctic summer, the fuel had begun to uh, aerosolize. Oh, good. And slowly leak through the corks. Amundsen, who had been aware of this problem, had had his cans soldered shut. (laughs) This meant that at every depot, they had a significant fuel shortage on the way back. Oh, great. And remember, that's also how they're getting their water. (laughs) So they're just literally not good at anything about this mission. Literally everything that could have gone wrong probably did. (laughs) You really can't fuck up much worse than they have. But winter was coming. And on the night of February 27th, the temperature dropped to negative 37 degrees Fahrenheit, 38 degrees Celsius. On March 2nd, they reached the second barrier depot, which again held a shortage of fuel. At this point, Oates' frostbitten feet were so swollen that he struggled to put on his boots each morning. On March 10th, when it became clear that the dog teams that that were supposed to be sent to meet them by this time were not coming, 
Scott ordered opium tablets to be distributed so that if any of the men wished for an easier way out of the situation, that they could take it, keeping a tube of morphine for his own use. Jesus. <laughs> By March 14th, midday temperatures had reached 43 below. On March 15th, Oates asked to be left behind in his sleeping bag to die. Scott's refused. <laughs> oh! And the party urged him to continue. Suck it up, old man. Get your boots on. That night, he went to sleep, telling the others that he hoped not to wake. In the morning, he left the tent, saying, I am just going outside and maybe some time. He did not return. I was gonna say, that's a pretty ominous, like, famous last words. Yeah, that is a man who is walking out of the tent on frostbitten feet to die. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just gonna go pick a snowbank. He is, he's like, he's like a sick cat. He's just sparing <laughs> you seeing the body. He's done. He's so done. And like, part of this is he's trying to sacrifice himself to make sure that they can get it back. Like, he is trying to stop being a burden. And it's pretty morbid, though. By March 19th, they were within 11, within 11 miles of the one-ton depot. But the remaining three all suffered varying degrees of frostbite on their own feet. On March 20th, however, they were pinned down by a blizzard with two days f- food and one day fuel. The wind never laid up, and though every day they attempted to advance, they were unable to push forward. This we know from Scott's final diary entry, on his presumed date of death, March 29th. What then of the dog teams? Oh no. The fact that the supply teams had been taken much further than expected meant that Cecil Mears returned much later than expected as well, by about two weeks. It was Mears to whom Scott had given instructions to restock the one-ton depot in late December, Uh then to head out in the first week of February with the dogs to meet the polar party on around March 1st, near the 82nd parallel. He completed neither of these tasks, and was never forced to do so by his superior officers for unclear reasons. Scott left orders to the effect of what to do if Mears had to return aboard the ship urgently based on letters from home, and it may have been anxiety about being left behind that kept Mears close to base. Surgeon Edward Atkinson had returned to base camp at the end of January, at which point he became the senior officer in command, an unfamiliar role. On February 13th, Atkinson attempted to set out with the dog teams himself alongside driver Dmitry Gerov, Light, late, likely, likely due to Atkinson's exhaustion from his own journey. The two men, by misfortune, found themselves snowed in at Hut Point, only 13 miles to the south. On the way back from where the final three-man supply party had split off from Scott, second-in-command Edward Evans had developed severe scurvy and needed to be carried. On February 18th, they reached Corner Camp, 35 miles away from Hut Point, with few supplies left. Tom Crean walked the remaining distance over 18 hours to fetch help, at which point he found Atkinson and Jerov, who diverted from their mission to meet Scott and to, res- uh, to rescue Lieutenant e- Evans and William Lashley, bringing the former back to base more dead than, than, dead than alive, though he would, eventually, he would eventually recover. Man, everybody's got hypothermia and scurvy. They're just leaving fucking toes and teeth all over the ice. You're going to lose your feet for a lot of reasons in the Antarctic, it turns out. Like, penguin attack, frostbite, scurvy. <laughs> you are going to be falling apart. Scattering You're going to be a Lego person. <laughs> bits of you across the landscape. 
You are you are less you are less taking a trip than you are sewing the ice with your flesh. <laughs> uh, the next most qualified person to take on the mission to meet Scott was Canadian physicist Charles Wright, but Chief Scientist George Simpson simply refused to dispense with him, insisting his scientific work receive priority. <laughs> Fuck your life. Atkinson instead chose assistant zoologist Apsley Cherry Garrard whose 1922 book, The Worst Journey in the World, remains one of the best sources on the subject. <laughs> not, a, not a man who minces words. <laughs> Got straight to the heart of the issue. Atkinson told Cherry Guard to travel to One Ton Depot with supplies for the returning polar party. If Scott had not already arrived, it was, then, it was at Cherry Guard's discretion what to do. Though Atkinson emphasized that Scott's instructions were that the dogs were not to be risked, and this was by no means a rescue mission. This concern for the dogs' well-being seems out of character for Scott, and very well may have been entirely an invention on Atkinson's behalf. <laughs> Liar. Cherry Gerard left with Jurov on February 26th, and arrived at the One Ton Depot on March 4th. They had sufficient supplies for 24 days, meaning they had eight days before they would need to return. Another option was to travel another four days south, but any further would mean killing the dogs to feed the dogs as they went. <laughs> Dog cannibalism. Cherry Garrard judged the weather and decided to wait. On March 10th, he turned back. And after Cherry Garrard returned, Atkinson made one more last-ditch attempt leaving on March 26th with Petty Officer Patrick Keohan, uh, Keohan without the dogs. But by the time they reached Corner Camp on March 30th, they were forced to admit that given the cold and the weather, they could not proceed, and that Scott's party with, had with certainty already perished. Just a series of poor choices and misjudgments. Over this entire affair, I want you to imagine the Benny Hill theme. <laughs> <laughs> like this was a disorganized clusterfuck. It's pretty bad. It is pretty bad. Like they never gave the supply parties time to prepare adequately before they were to head out again. And like even like there's even like their most tragic things, like the one ton depot was initially supposed to be laid much further south. But due to the fact that they didn't want to kill ponies as they went along when they started weakening on the first supply mission, like, Scott had them turn back early. If it had been where it was originally planned, they would have more than hit it. This whole journey was just, like, miscalculations, fossil expeditions, and dog cannibalism. If they had had two fewer mistakes, they probably would have, other than Evans, survived. <laughs> but no. Not only that, but like just the weather. If the weather had not turned when it did, they would have been fined. And later, like uh, later meteorologists have said that this was a freak weather weather pattern that didn't match the normal conditions in Antarctica. And it was not until the next summer that they were able that the remaining men were able to mount a search. For this, they forewent rescuing a still very much alive geological team, led by Victor Campbell, Fuck em. Which, the Terra, which the Terra Nova had been unable to pick up as scheduled due to packed ice, and were instead forced to 
winter miserably in a snow cave, surviving on fish and seal, while suffering hunger, frostbite, and dysentery. Fuck them. They're dead Incidentally, to us. A- apparently burning blubber in an enclosed seal cave at close quarters is not pleasant. <laughs> oh, that's gotta smell terrible. <laughs> on October 29th, the search party left, and on November 12th, they found the frozen bodies of Bowers, Scott, and Wilson. They retrieved the men's diaries and scientific specimens and erected a cairn over the bodies with two skis for a cross. They were unable to locate Oates' body, but erected another cairn near where they thought he died on November 15th. Yikes. Yeah, that is a yikes. (laughs) That's a little ominous. I give that a three yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Big yike. They returned to Hut Point on November 25th, only to find that Campbell's northern party had managed to rescue itself. (laughs) Look at them go. How industrious of them. The knowledge of Scott's demise massively overshadowed Amundsen's achievement. (laughs) You think? (laughs) Yeah, a bit fucking morbid. (laughs) The guy who put this all together is dead. We're feeding dogs to each other. Everybody's died. One guy just walked out into the snow and perished. Put a damper on things. It was a little grisly, and... Uh, in in the aftermath, like while Amundsen was very well received in Norway and very well respected, like the British never really gave up a grudge towards him and resent him as like a nasty Norse cheater almost to this day. <laughs> <laughs> Man, he just made he had better luck and fewer stupid decisions. His team was more focused. They had one mission. And they relied on tried-and-true methods. They had enough dogs, and very importantly, no, no ponies. The correct number of horses to bring to the Antarctic is none. Yeah, it's just the Norwegians figured that you should probably know how to use skis. <laughs> I feel they, they just had a, a birth advantage. They're, they're Norwegians. Listen to what people who live in the Arctic say about getting around the Arctic shouldn't be... Like, isn't that complex of an idea? Like, <laughs> they've the kind done this. of... Yeah, they've done this before. Like, if the Inuit say it's good, it's good. And <laughs> the kind of arrogant you have to be to think that you know better than the people who live there is astonishing. It's a very British kind of death. <laughs> <laughs> if only they had horses. Yeah, no. <laughs> they don't have horses for a reason. Due to the decline of the British Empire and due to the sort of desperate nationalism trying to repair the moment, Scott's reputation for a very long time and the mistakes he made in the planning of his expedition went uncriticized really only late in the 20th century started to receive any kind of scrutiny. Um, <laughs> Funny that. The the idea that Scott is purely a bungler, that, that, he's purely, that he purely died based on his own mistakes is incorrect, but the idea that he was some tragic hero is likewise incredibly flawed. Um, no one mistake was crucial, but he absolutely had a major hand in his death and the deaths of everyone around him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mistakes were made. <laughs> Mistakes were made. It's the kind of nice ed situation where you can't fuck up this much. <laughs> um, but 
that's the story of Robert Falcon Scott and Raoul Amundsen, a tragic figure largely propelled by the British Empire's dying influence and a cheeky Norwegian bloke who definitely, definitely didn't even blink while he ate those dogs. <laughs> Just wolfed them down. Ugh. That's that's a man who makes high hard eye contact with the remaining dogs while he eats their litter mates. <laughs> Delicious. <sighs> but we hope that you've enjoyed well. <laughs> well We hope that you've stomached today's you've endured. episode. <laughs> we hope you've endured this and proven yourself ready for the next mission to the pole. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't eat dogs or bring horses to the bottom of the world. Um, I have been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we are Fat, Fat, French, French, and and fabulous. fabulous.